so I need to get this plugged in here. And then I realized I did not pull my, my notes out. There we go. So we have spent a considerable amount of time on uh, six words for understanding the Word of God. We'll get to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 in just a moment. Uh, but I do want to uh, very quickly here uh, make reference to some resources that might be help in our understanding of uh, Bible translations as we have spent a considerable amount of time looking at this uh, aspect of translation, commun the communication of God's Word into languages from the original languages. And I'm not going to go back and, and go through a long review, but these are some resources that might be helpful. And there are many other resources. Be careful where you go on the internet because there are a lot of uh, caves and deep, deep, dark places on the internet. I don't recommend the internet unless you can go to a place where there is good uh, scholarly, um, authoritative types of, uh, of information with, with good resources. Um, but there's a lot of, can I just say yahoos out there? There's a lot of yahoos. <laughs> and I'm not talking about yahoo.com, I'm talking about yahoos, or yahoos, whatever you, want to, whatever you want to call them. There's some people with some really, uh, can I just say, unscholarly or unintelligent sometimes, uh, lacking common sense, really kind of writing um, a, uh, a tangent, so to speak. But these are some resources that might be of help um, for a, a summary that's very, very good, and it's got pictures and that helps us, right? Pictures are very, very helpful. It's not a graphic novel, but it is a very good summary of the way in which God preserved his word, and he does summaries of, the different, of several of the different translations. I read from David Beale's book, uh, part of it, last week. It is very good. Uh, I know Dr. Beale, he is very trustworthy. And he has done his research. And as a matter of fact, he has been to almost all of these places. And a lot of the pictures in the book are pictures that he himself even has taken. Or if they are uh, a borrowed picture, he's at least been there and probably taken a similar picture. We used to call him audiovisual Beale in college because he, he would say, he would, he would be teaching and then he would show us a picture of where he had been. He had been to that place as he's teaching. It was, it was phenomenal. But he has a very good book. Uh, Dr. James White, um, that is a very, very technical book. It's very good, but it is technical. So it can be helpful, but just understand it is like diving into a, a, a manual kind of. Um, this is a very, very good book that's, again, not real long. It's written in layman's terms. Uh, Dr. Mark Ward uh, he works for Logos Bible Software now, whatever their parent company is called, I'm not sure, can't remember now. But that is a very good book that really summarizes um, arguments. Um, I know that this issue can be very controversial, but I feel like he deals with it in a very balanced way and explains things very much in layman's terms. And then Dr. David Sorensen, um, again, that's going to be a scholarly approach um, but he is going to take a very King James-only point of view. But he's, it's, it's a very good book for helping us understand 
the principles of separation and to be discerning and to really be careful uh, that we don't just willy-nilly, you know, follow any translation that comes out from whatever publishing company. He really deals with discernment and biblical separation, and uh, he does a good job uh, in that book of explaining, uh, again, from a King James-only position. Uh, but these are just some resources. There are some good sermons out there. There are some other good resources. I just thought I'd put these up there. Um, but as of right now, I want to move to uh, the next word in our six words for understanding the Word of God and go to interpretation. But I do want to pause for a minute and just ask, are there any questions that are just like really on the tip of your tongue that have just been gnawing at your, your, your heart and mind this week that you want to ask? Again, I'm not an expert on this field, but I did feel like it was something that I needed to uh, cover and help us understand uh, even our position as a church. And I wanted to be balanced about it. I didn't want to be, what's the word, controversial about it. Um, I certainly did not want to create any kind of division or discord. Um, We believe in the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. And we're thankful that God has faithfully preserved his word. And we can hold in our hands the word of God. And we are not looking for something out there that's missing or waiting for some secret from on high to give us the code to get the inner knowledge. No, we have the word of God. He has faithfully, supernaturally, providentially preserved his word. And again, we've gone through each of these words from revelation to inspiration to preservation to translation and now to interpretation. So any questions? Oh, I miss it. Oh, yes, Gary. Yeah, I have one question. Uh-huh. That is, uh, and I appreciate that and I understand that you read from King James and yes. all of the lessons and everything is from King James. Correct. I have no issue with that, but the issue I have is not with this church, because I understand you also allow other versions. Mm-hmm. Okay, to the best of my knowledge, it it is because people want to have an authoritative, reliable copy of the Word of God, and honestly, there are a lot of very good, well-meaning people who love the Lord, who love the Word of God, who I highly respect. I have grown up in ministries that were King James only. Um, I've been under pastors who were King James only, and from what... I have gathered in my time in the ministry in, in serving under some of these men, it is about having a reliable text that we can faithfully and consistently go to. And it gets very confusing. It gets a little overwhelming when we start to think about all the manuscripts and all the different changes in word words and the modern English, and, and it, it, it gets very overwhelming for people. So they want to be able to go to a very safe, reliable, consistent text that God has used for 400 plus years. And I think a lot of them are very well-intentioned and very well-meaning. But again, I am burdened to help us go and see a little deeper that there are 6,000 manuscripts. And the King James only had, the King James translators only had a handful. And that God has 
preserved his word and given us a testimony from historical, carefully preserved, carefully copied manuscripts that is none other than God himself providentially, supernaturally preserving his word. But I understand that desire to have a consistent, faithful, convenient, (laughs) good translation that God has used. Yes, Earl. Oh, yeah, yeah, go right ahead. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. And there's another book that I, I'm not even going to put on because it's not a scholarly work, but I won't even give the title. But it was, I mean, when there, when there are people calling God-fearing, Bible-believing, professors and pastors who, because they're not King James only, they're calling them heretics. And then there's the Ruckmanites who are saying that you go back and you correct the original Greek by using the King James. So you are fixing the Greek by the King James. And then I uh, heard missionaries in Kenya saying that there was a King James only translator who was, because the Swahili version wasn't translated from the King James, he was literally taking the King James version and translating into Swahili. So he was taking a translation of a translation. But because, it, I mean, then there are, there are people who say you can only get saved by the King James. I mean, it, it gets, I'm, I'm, there are, those are some people that are in, in the minority, but I, I just think it's because a lot of well-intentioned, God-fearing people, they just want a safe, reliable text that God has used and is a beautiful text and is a very accurate text. But we have to remember that God did preserve his word and he didn't say the only way he would preserve his word in the English language would be through one particular translation. If we say that, then we start to get into the area of continuing double inspiration and we have to be very, very careful. God said he would preserve his word. He didn't say in Revelation 23... Hint, hint. He didn't say in Revelation 23, (laughs) I will preserve my word in the Spanish in this version, in the German in this version, in the English in this version, the Dutch in this version. Again, one of the things I believe that it has helped us do is it has helped us be students of the word and helped us be very careful in our biblical study and our knowledge so that we can look back and we can trace the, pres- the, the 
the, the revelation, inspiration, and preservation of God's word throughout history and in the evidence of 6,000 Greek manuscripts plus the careful preservation of the Old Testament text by the Masoretes and the Masoretic family. It's incredible. I think that's one of the reasons God wants us to be students because we are tied to a historical text and a historical faith that is evidential. I love that. I love that God has our faith tied to logic and facts <laughs> because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so he wants us to be students of the word. Good, good question. I'm probably elaborating too much. Thank you, Earl. And then Derek, you had a state or a question? And, and really, that's, a, that's something that separates Christianity from every other religion. There's, there are multitudes of things that separate biblical Christianity from false religions. And one of the which is that we have a historical faith. That we have our, our Bible is tied to historical evidence of real events, of real people in real time. That God in his providence directed so that we are here today because our faith, in one sense, rests upon the faith of those who have gone before us. Now, our faith is ultimately in God, but you understand what I'm saying. And this is one of the things that really irritates me about my generation and some of the younger generations that just seem to act like everything that is old and that's from the past is out of date, out of touch, and is unworthy of our time and attention. That's ridiculous. I would be an absolute fool to think that I have arrived here as the pastor of Brian Baptist Church and no one else has ever done it better than me and I have a newfangled idea how it's going to be done and how to do it and you just have to listen to me because I'm going to show you the way. What? <laughs> it's like Mike Schrock said when he was here, Evangelist Schrock said, many, much of what I'm doing is just stirring us up to remembrance. Because we constantly have to be reminded. Again, why do we go to school from three years or four years of age all the way until sometimes we're 25 or 26 and get a doctorate and whatever? Because we just want to be tortured? That's what some kids think. School is just a form of torture, right? And that's what some people think about, uh, about school. No, it's because there is a reason we are tied to the wisdom of the past. Now, it doesn't mean that we get our faith from man's reason and logic, but our faith is tied to, again, real people in real time with real events that God used and that we have to learn from and their wisdom and their experiences. And we go to the Bible and we learn of people who were sinners like us who God used. 
And many times the Bible exposes their faults and their failures in ways that if it were a human book, a human author would gloss over and make those Bible characters to be nothing but superheroes, Greek mythological and Roman mythological gods. If the Bible were a human book, it would have all kinds of human handprints all over it. But no, it's not a human book. It is God's book. It is God's word. It is God-breathed. So it's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and it has God's fingerprints, God's handprint all over it, and it's all about Jesus Christ, the living word. So anyway, I think I saw one other hand. Yes, Star? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Many of the manuscripts were all, mm-hmm, right. Okay, Jot and Tittle, in that, in that context, this is great. This will be a great segue into our rules for interpretation. Because Jot and Tittle is referring to every single prophecy, little or big, is fulfilled. Every little promise, every big promise, every medium-sized promise that God ever made, God will fulfill it. Jot and Tittle is not referring to every little a, an, and the, and every little speck will be found in every single manuscript and only in one single version. It's saying that there will be every single prophecy, every promise of God, whether big, medium, or small, will be fulfilled. God will keep, God will fulfill that promise. Now, from a translation standpoint, in the entirety of the manuscript evidence and in the preservation and in the translation, we have every jot and tittle of God's word so that we can say, Every passage of scripture that is correctly translated is the word of God. And we have that. And we can go, again, without getting too carried away, we can even go to the way the apostles and the way Jesus himself handled the Old Testament. In the Septuagint that was used in the New Testament, when there was a translation that was used, it was the Septuagint. There were times where the apostles and where Jesus would even summarize passages of the Old Testament. Even in the way they faithfully handled the word of God, we can see how we should translate and faithfully translate and interpret the word of God. It's a big answer, a long answer, but jot and tittle, we have to understand that primarily refers to the promises and the prophecies of scripture. All of them are going to be fulfilled, big, little, or small. Or medium. <laughs> Earl? Hebrew. Good point. Great point. Yep. Okay. Yes, Gary?
me boil down to maybe two words. Simplicity and security. Yes. And sometimes it's outright pride. Sometimes it's pride. I've met men who are King James only who are very proud and they're arrogant. Just like I've met Calvinists who are very proud and very arrogant. I've met Arminians who are very proud and very arrogant. And the sad part of our selfish nature and our sin nature is we can become very proud and very arrogant, very cocky about lots of little things that God never intended us for us to be proud about. But you're right. Simplicity. And what was the other word you used? Security. Security. That's, that's a lot of it. And that's where a lot of well-intentioned people are at. And then some, they go off on tangents because of pride. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So we will segue to interpretation. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We have the Word of God. But now there comes this matter of interpretation. And this is where we can really get messed up. And this is where some people even rationalize and spiritualize blatant sin because that's your interpretation. Well, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about tobacco, smoking, vaping, e-cigarettes. On and on it goes, right? The Bible says nothing about Nirvana, ACDC. I mean, I can go into all the Guns N' Roses, Rolling Stones. Um, I'm running out of Taylor Swift, um, Alice Cooper, Miley Cyrus. If I go much further, I'm going to really start stepping on, on, on toes, right? Kanye, okay? On and on we could go. <laughs> I didn't hear what he said. <laughs> right? Isn't this, isn't this where people are at many times? A lot of times we want to reinterpret, the, we want to put our interpretation right here above the Bible and see the Bible through our sin and what we want to get away with and what we want to do and how we want to live instead of submitting ourselves to the Bible. Okay? So interpretation is extremely important. We are to be led by the Spirit of God. God has given us the Spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. And we need the illuminating, as 1 Corinthians 2.14 references, the illuminating power of the Spirit of God. Because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. I listen to some very conservative people. On podcasts, I question whether or not some of them are truly born again. As a matter of fact, when they come right out and say what particular religion that they are, I don't think that they're truly born again. They're real close, but their faith is in Jesus plus. This is one of the real dangers in our culture today, is we want to add Jesus on to a lot of things, to our reason, to our logic, to our good works, we want to add Jesus to the church. We want to add Jesus to this, that, and the other. A lot of sincere people who have Jesus plus. Well, the Bible is very clear that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And we say that explicitly on purpose. 
Because a lot of people are trying to add Jesus and they are doing moral things and moralistic things and they have, through their reason, through their logic, they have determined, hmm, you know what? We might be a little bit more happier, a little bit more successful, have a little bit more of a prosperous life if we practice some of these good things. So we don't do certain activities and we don't participate in certain immoral sins because we know through logic, through reason, through common grace that you're better off if you don't participate in certain activities, don't do certain things. But is that moralism salvation? Does that moralism save? That's one of the problems that we've had in America. We've had a lot of moralism a lot of moralistic teaching. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong. I, please don't misunderstand me when I say I enjoy a good Leave it to Beaver, a good Dick Van Dyke, a good Andy Griffith show. I, I enjoy them. But what's missing from all of those good programs? God, Christ, the Bible. Andy Griffith could solve any problem in the world, at least in Mayberry. But he never refers, I mean, occasionally there might be a reference to scripture or there will be a scriptural principle, but he doesn't give glory to God. He doesn't tell little Opie. Sometimes he even tells him to lie. Sometimes he even tells Opie, if you watch carefully, he even tells Opie to lie because he, he says it's okay to lie in certain situations. Dick Van Dyke, they had separate beds for Mary Tyler Moore and Dick Van Dyke. Very moral, but there's a lot of things that they solved Absent of God and his word and giving no glory to him. Leave it to Beaver. Same thing. I mean, what's the, what's the, the, the bratty kid in Leave it to Beaver? Eddie Haskell. Now, he was, a, he was a scoundrel sometimes, right? Misunderstood. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Spoken by a... <laughs> so, we have all these ways in which we try to reinterpret the word of God to fit our mindset, our thinking, our way of doing things. And we have to understand that the natural man receiveth not things, the spirit of God. And there are good people out there who are in debates with some of these LGBTQIA plus whatever alphabet letter they're going to add. And they have very rational, very moralistic arguments. But oftentimes when I watch and I'll see some of their interviews and some of their debates, they, don't, they never tie it to the word of God. This is what God says. I, I rarely hear among some of these conservative moralistic people Here's what the Bible says. Here you're how, here's how your life can be changed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's how you can receive forgiveness of sins, how you can escape that bondage of sin that you are in. Many times I, that's missing. Very moralistic, very common sense, very common grace, very good principles that are very reasonable, very logical. And there's the stats even to back up many of their things. But the power is in the word of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is... The power of God into salvation. And to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. So, when we're interpreting the Bible, we have, to, we have to follow good interpretive 
interpretive principles. Interpretative <laughs> principles. I'm not sure I'm saying the, the right word. But we first of all need to interpret literally. And there are several words or phrases, but let's begin with this statement. If the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. So these people get into, well, 40 of this and 7 of that. And there were so many, I mean, there's even some people, well, there were five, there were five kings that were hidden in that cave. I think it's in the book of Judges or Joshua. There were five kings hidden in the cave and the stone was rolled over. And the stone means something and the five kings is symbolic of, they get really really kind of, can we not just say that there were five evil kings who rebelled against God and God <laughs> judged them by rolling a stone over and they died because they were in rebellion against God, but there were you know, hidden meanings in the stone, in the cave, in the five. <laughs> and it gets really, gets really weird. So if the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. We treat the Bible differently than we treat any other book. Scholars will take apart the Bible and treat it like they wouldn't even treat Greek literature and historical literature of American literature. I mean, they, they, they are so wrong in their view of the Bible that their view of the Bible affects their interpretation. And so we, we begin with context. Oh, give you one example. Judge not. Is that not ripped out of context all the time? Without even reading the rest of the passage. And they try who, who don't even know the Bible, who've never even read the Bible, will try to use the Bible to judge and condemn the people who know the Bible and who are saved by the Word of God and who are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Judge not. Context. How many times are there passages ripped out of context? I just heard somebody, it was funny, somebody was telling me yesterday, we were talking about bumper stickers, and I had not heard this one, but I guess there's a bumper sticker that's out there, and it quotes Exodus something, where the people of Israel were told not to come near the mountain, the Mount Sinai, or else they would die, and so somebody put that on their, their bumper sticker on the back of their car, something about, if you come near me, you shall die, or something like that, you know. So if you are driving and you tailgate them, you know, obviously that is a ridiculous, out-of-context use of that passage in, in Exodus, where, where, where the Israelites were told not to come near uh, the mountain, Mount Sinai, while God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments. All kinds of examples. One of the ones I think that's abused a lot is Philippians 4 and verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And what do people do? They put in all kinds of all things that they make up instead of understanding that that is in the context, first of all, in Philippians 4, of giving. Giving. Oh, we never use Philippians 4.13 when it comes to our wallet and tithes and offerings. I can do all things through Christ. No, I can't. I guess. I guess I can't do all things. <laughs> right? But if you look at Philippians 4 in the context, it is in the context of giving. Now, it's also in the context of contentment and trusting God that in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. And again, I'm not trying to be overly ridiculous with this, but where we read, and I believe it's in James, he giveth more grace. 
that is actually in the context of humility and submission. Now again, there are other passages that deal with grace and God's grace being sufficient, obviously, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and uh, passages like that. But that particular phrase, we have to be careful. We have to understand that he giveth more grace. Where? Where is that context? It's in humility. It's in denying ourselves. It's in submitting to God. And don't we need a lot of grace for humility? Because <laughs> we're full of ourselves. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Oops, I went too far. That's right, I already put that one up there. Scripture by Scripture. This is another one that is very, very uh, abused. We, we take one passage of Scripture and we don't realize, or we don't take the time to realize or to look up other passages that speak to that same area. Now, would God change his mind from Genesis to Revelation? No, but we are a dispensational church, which means that we believe that God doesn't change, but we believe that God deals with his children in different ways throughout the different dispensations. We can talk about signs and visions and revelations as one example. Only four times in Scripture are there miracle-working powers given to men, and those were all in the context of the giving of God's Word as a testimony to this is the Word of God. The fourth one is future in the time of the, the book of Revelation in the Great Tribulation with the two witnesses where there is... a a miracle-working power given to those two witnesses. The other times are Moses, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Okay, so we have to understand, Scripture by Scripture, God deals with, has God promised never to destroy the earth again with a flood? Okay, is he going to keep that promise? And how does he remind us of that promise? A rainbow. It's a beautiful thing to behold. I know that the LGBT community has tried to hijack the rainbow, uh, but we know the true meaning of the rainbow. And Creation Museum, Ark Encounter, Answers in Genesis, they came out with a slogan. Uh, I think Chandler has a t-shirt, Taking Back the Rainbow. <laughs> and it's got um, the, 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 the verse, I believe, from uh, Genesis on that t-shirt. But anyway, scripture by scripture. Okay, so if we don't interpret scripture by scripture, we can get into a lot of, been on a lot of tangent tangents, a lot of rabbit trails, and get into a lot of trouble. Plain language, what it says is what it means. Okay, at the same time, there is figurative language. So understanding when there are types and symbols and metaphors and similes, we have all kinds of colloquialisms in our language today. Anybody, can anybody think of a few off the top of their head? I use a lot of baseball analogies. Hit a home run. Three strikes and you're out. Um, I just, I use a lot of baseball uh, analogies. Obviously the Bible doesn't use that kind of, but the Bible uses figurative language, metaphors, similes, because God gave us his word in languages that God had, again, as we talked about with revelation and inspiration, God gave his word to individuals to write, God breathed his inspired word, but he kept 
the personality and the experiences and the vocabulary of a Moses, of a John, of a Matthew, of a Luke. So they wrote and they used terms and they used the vocabulary they had available. In the book of Revelation, could there be references to nuclear weapons, to tanks, to missiles and rockets? Did John have the term nuclear in his Greek vocabulary? No, he didn't have tanks. He didn't have helicopters and F-16s in his vocabulary. But he may be describing in some of those passages what we know as F-16s and nuclear weapons and tanks and rockets and missiles, etc. Okay? So, plain language and figurative language. We, we have to recognize symbolism, metaphors, figurative language when it's appropriate to do so. Questions there on interpreting literally? Okay. Oh, yes, Gary. That's okay. I'm sorry I keep overlooking you. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Correct. So, uh, without overlooking those, how do we how do we uh, view those passages? I'm trying to think of a good example. Off the top of my head. I'll have, to, I'll have to give some more thought. But you're right. There are places where it's only mentioned once. So we can still take the whole of Scripture to help us understand that there would be wrong ways to interpret that because that would violate the character of God. That would violate this particular command or principle. But it's only mentioned one time. It's true. Right, let me give you a little bit of an example without getting too carried away here. Um, the exception clause when it comes to divorce I know, I'm, I know I'm walking on some dangerous territory. There, there are, I, I've, I know good men who are all over the place on this. Well, the exception clause is technically only mentioned in a couple of places. And so we have to look at, okay, what, does, what is God's ideal for marriage? What then is the cultural context? Um, there are some people who argue that the exception clause only refers to the Jewish engagement period, because that was only allowed, a divorce was only allowed in the engagement period, like with Joseph and, and Mary. I mean, that is one area, maybe that's a, not the best example, but that's one that people argue over, because it's only mentioned a couple times. And it's only in Matthew, if I remember right. So then people have argued, well, that was strictly a Jewish thing. You know, but that, that, there are places like that. But we have to, again, look at the character of God, the whole of Scripture, commands, principles. The law of first mention, has anybody heard of the law of first mention? Genesis 3 refers to the serpent crushing, or excuse me, the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will crush, bruise, literally crush the head of the serpent. That's the first mention of the gospel. Is there a lot more? That's said about the gospel in the Bible. But the law of first mention is interesting because the first time something is mentioned in the Bible should be a point where we put a flag, a marker. Because God often will expand on that and expand on that. And then we get to the book of Romans and he really expands, you know. 
So that's another thing to keep in mind. Good question. Okay? So this is another area where we really need to be careful when interpreting the Bible. And I'm borrowing these five questions um, from a book. I forget the title now. Uh, Guide to the Study of the Bible. I forget the title. But I'm borrowing these five questions. They're excellent questions to ask. When we come to the Bible, this is one of the arguments that people use to rationalize their sin, to excuse themselves. Well, that was cultural. That doesn't apply to the 21st century. Very, very careful. We have to be very, very careful, okay? That we are not trying to say, well, that was, and the people have argued this. Well, Paul said something about, in Corinthians, about, in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 7, when he's dealing with sexual morality and marriage and virgins. And there are times where Paul says something along the lines of, this is me speaking, not Jesus. Is he saying that he's speaking without the inspiration of God? What is he saying? Okay, my opinion, but what? He's saying Jesus in the Gospels, in the recorded accounts from the Gospels, Jesus did not specifically address this. This is my opinion, but it is still what? Inspired by God. He's saying Jesus may not have specifically quoted or spoken specifically in recorded scripture about this. He did touch on this topic, but here is my opinion by the inspiration of God. That is recorded for us to understand more fully. That is huge when you get to passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, so let's ask ourselves these questions. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? We have to ask ourselves that when we get to the culture. Okay, now 21st century America. Let's take that lens and let's put it over. <laughs> right? That's what we do. When really we have to understand, first of all, what was God saying in that immediate cultural setting to those people? Question number two, what are the differences between them and us? Are there differences? Okay. Thirdly, what is the theological principle in this text? Now we're having to take and we're having to submit ourselves to God's order to God's meaning, God's intention. Again, I say it often. God meant what he said and said what he meant. When God gave the word of God, when he gave his inspired word, did he mumble? Did he hiccup? <coughs> Cough? <laughs> That's what we do, right? When we, we whisper something because we don't want anybody to hear it. We mumble something. We know how it is. Te teenagers are really good at this. They're experts. Teenagers are experts at this. I would, I would deal, I would deal with, with teenagers in school. I still deal with teenagers. I have four of them in my home. Anyway, <laughs> but what, 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 do they, what do they do? They do the little, they do the little look, right? Now I know they have texts and they have emojis and they have code words. And I, I've told you stories of dealing with teenage boys who had code words disgusting code words for girls. And they would begin to say them, and the girls eventually figured it out, and I had to deal with them, okay? But did God use that kind of methodology when he wrote his word? A little aside, 
a little mumble, a little whisper, a little glance. Hey, Paul, I'm really talking to Peter over here. <laughs> did he do that? What did Paul, what did Peter say? All right, I'm getting it mixed up now. It's Peter referring to Paul's writings. And, 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 and then Peter will say, as our brother Paul wrote in the scriptures, what, is it, what are they saying? As Jesus and the apostles would quote from the Old Testament. Yeah, it's very clear. Very clear. Yes, Emily. Uh, haven't heard that one. Wow. Hmm. I have not heard that one. Hmm. Interesting. I haven't heard that one, but that goes along with some of this. And like the guy that showed up this, that the security team identified um, one night, and he was back here, and I talked to him on the side. He was he kind of in that same. You you get you get demonic germs in your body when you commit certain sins or you start thinking certain sinful ways. He was talking about these demonic germs that you get in your in your body. It was really weird. Um, Anyway, but the security team was like sharks on blood on that one. That was good. I was thankful. So I just kind of moved him off to the side over here, and I made sure Denny was close. <laughs> and then the other security guys, so I, didn't, I was not going to go to a back room with that guy. But anyway, um, yeah, he was talking alone, some of those weird lines like that. But that's a new one. Yes, Earl. Oh, oh, yes, yeah, yes, oh, oh, yes, yep, that's a great example, and, oh, the church has been hammered on that lately, well, that was a cultural thing back in Paul's day, women should be ordained, should be pastors, should be deacons, etc., yeah, that's, good, good for the Southern Baptists who took a stand against, I mean, they should have taken, they should take a stand on other things, but, and should have dealt with Rick Warren a long time ago on other things. But they finally kicked him saddleback out of the church, out of the convention, I mean, because he was ordaining women. So I'm thankful the Southern Baptists took a stand there. Again, there's other issues with the SPC, but they should have dealt with Rick Warren a long time ago. But, yeah, that's, that's been an issue even in the SPC uh, recently. Yeah. All right, any other questions? We are almost out of time. I want to touch on the last two questions, and we'll come back to this, Lord willing, next week. Try to wrap this up as best we can, because then Earl's going to teach the adult class in the month of June. But question number four, how does this theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? There it again, interpreting Scripture by Scripture. I identify with the Lord's help by the Spirit of God and with good counsel. I come to this theological principle, how does it fit with the rest of the Bible? I'm going through these questions. And again, I'm not here in reading this passage to try to come up with my own interpretation. I am 
discovering what God said. And so it has to fit with other passages, with other theological principles, commands, principles, and promises that are taught in other places in the scripture. It's not going to contradict. And that's where we get into, I know, these apparent contradictions. And Answers in Genesis has, I forget how many volumes of questions about the Bible. And they do a very good job of answering questions and keeping things in, in context. And then the last question, how should this theological principle be lived out? That's where we get to application. How does this, when I properly interpret, I ask these questions, how then do I live this out? Not do I excuse myself or find a way to commit or involve myself in some sinful activity and then rationalize away the principles, the commands, the promises of Scripture, but to properly interpret what did God say and then how does this theological principle apply here in submitting myself humbly to the Word of God. We are out of time. Any last comment or question, we'll come back, and Lord willing, wrap this up next week before um, Earl teaches in June. Yes? Yes. We need to know what God says before, right. And again, we get, we get into this with our children sometimes. They don't hear us and interpret what we say. They hear us and interpret what they want us to say. That that's not really what we said. When the teacher says, go to the bathroom and come right back, what does the teacher mean? Go to the bathroom and come right back. What did you do, Derek, when you were a kid? Sorry. (laughs) And I would catch the kids that would go to the lockers. They'd go peek in the window of the high school class. They would wander. They'd go stop by the office. Oh, I need medicine. I have a headache. Yeah, whatever. Right. Okay. The teacher said, you may go to the bathroom and come right back. And then the teachers, we would go, we, we would rehearse this. And a good teacher would say, did you go anywhere else? Where else were you? How come it took you so long? I'm going to talk to you after class. Right. I mean, and you, you, kind of, you find out. And I would catch the kids looking in the high school classroom. I'd say, what are you doing? Why are you here? Where were you supposed to go on the 20 questions? Yes. Yes, hath God said. God didn't say that, did he? Right. Yep. Yes. Yep. And he didn't mumble when he said it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Good point. Great point. Excellent. All right, we are out of time. Let's pray, and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, thank you for the clear principles from the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your Word so plainly, Lord, so reasonably, so clearly. And Lord, we struggle with obedience because we want to do what we want to do. Lord, help us to submit to your word. Help us to interpret it properly and to apply it in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being